Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. What a post-US Open treat we got here. A rematch of the US Open final. Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, number one and number two in the world, clashing again in another big final. And Djokovic gets his revenge on Medvedev with a three-set victory, another historic Masters 1000 title. His 37th, passing Rafael Nadal. Big show today. I have some some takeaways, some takes, if you will. I have some tactical analysis for you. And then we're going to bring on Alex Gruskin to talk a little Paris and then also look ahead to the next-gen finals in Milan next week and even the ATP finals in Turin coming up in a little bit. So big picture, man, you almost thought that the history making was in the rear view in 2021 for Novak after the the chase for the Grand Slam was complete. But no, comes back in Paris, secures another year-end number one to pass Pete Sampras, and then passes Rafa here. Now, this feels a lot different because obviously Nadal could very much still recapture this uh this Masters 1000 title race, and it's very much an, an ongoing race. But Djokovic pulls ahead here. More importantly, he strikes back in what is becoming this ultra important rivalry in head to head, especially on hard courts. On hard courts, at this point, there's no better rivalry in men's tennis, and it's not particularly close. Novak said after the match that Daniil is right now his probably his biggest rival. It certainly felt like that in 2021. And on hard courts, that's just not really debatable. This head-to-head, though, not only does it feel important, and when I say important, I mean that it, it's going to dictate how the next couple years go for Novak, how he does in this head-to-head. That's what it feels like. And the same for Medvedev. How much of a dent can he make? Um, and can he win? Can he tack on and you know win that second major? And so on. So this head-to-head feels really important in that conversation. It's also interesting. Like there's just a lot going on here. Tactically, matchup-wise, I mean, there's great respect. There's no bad blood here. I think they're fans of each other. But I mean, they, they practiced at... Uh, the uh, Maradoglu Academy a week before Paris here, and then they meet again in the final. So it's not that there's it's not that there's any friction or anything like that, but it, it's interesting because there have been twists and turns into this in this head to head. And if you if you're interested in in that kind of things and the tactics of it, it's just been fascinating to watch these two go at it. And it's good. God, the tennis is good. This was a high-quality match. So um, all I'll say here about the head-to-head, don't overreact. That's my real message when it comes to the head-to-head right now. Uh, it is 6-4, Novak Djokovic. Djokovic won the first three. Now, if Medvedev won this match in Paris, if he won it, he would have become the only player to play Novak 10 times or more, it would have been his 10th meeting, and have a 500 record against him. Anyone who's played Novak 10 times or more has a losing record to him. Daniil almost changed that if he won the match. And if he won the match, I think there would have been a lot of bad takes out there about how Medvedev owns the head-to-head, owns Djokovic. Those wouldn't have been good takes. What also wouldn't be a good take is to say, oh, U.S. Open, that was just because Djokovic was feeling the pressure. Um, this head-to-head is really like what we saw in Australia when Novak blew the blew the doors off of Medvedev and blew him out, and now he beats him again here. Medvedev's no problem for Novak. That's also a bad take. That's bad. The reality is ever since that match in 2019 at the Australian Open, where the first two sets of the match were amazing tennis, it was Uh, Round of 16, Aussie Open 2019. Ever since that match, it's been pretty clear. Medvedev, Djokovic, they're going to play tough matches. 
That's going to be a head-to-head that's going to be competitive and interesting. Nobody's figured anyone out here. And there's not a lot between these guys. Don't overreact to one match. And I would have been saying that no matter who won the match. Do not overreact to one match. Now, as it pertains to the performance, and Djokovic pulling off a three-set victory, uh, final score 4-6, first set to Medvedev. Djokovic takes the next two sets 6-3, 6-3. Novak broken serving for the match in the third set at 5-2. Um, and ends up breaking serve for the match on another epic match point. In terms of the performance, to me, that's the best big match performance Djokovic has put in since Roland Garros. That is the best I've seen Novak Djokovic play in a big match since Roland Garros. The candidates, you know, you could say Berrettini, U.S. Open quarterfinal. You could say Nishikori at the Olympics, which was blowout city for Novak. And no, I'm not going there with that. I'm going to stick with this one. Let's be honest. Berrettini, Nishikori, hugely favorable head-to-heads uh, or matchups for Djokovic. Nishikori, a blowout. Berrettini, really close first set. Um, Berrettini won the first set, right? And then Novak won the next three, right? So classic Djokovic-Berrettini match, basically. Um, this was the best performance I've seen since Roland Garros. Great performance against Tsitsipas in the final. Epic, unforgettable performance against Nadal in the semi. Best performance since then. It's the best he's played. Because he had the complete game firing. Everything was there, including the offense. Because throughout the last couple months with Djokovic and with history and pressure on his shoulders, it's been a lot of matches where it's been Novak's not at his best, looking a little tight. He had his legs. He had his defense. He had his return. He had his consistency. He had his mental toughness. And he won the match. But he didn't have the timing in his aggressive ground stroke baseline game. He didn't have a flawless first serve performance. He didn't have opportune, you know, perfect execution at the net. He had everything here. He had everything here. This was the final two sets. You could poke holes in the first set. There were a lot of issues with the first set um, for Djokovic. Next two sets, best performance I've seen him put in. And that can't be surprising. He came to Paris to secure that year-end number one. Got it. So this was the first match in a while where I think Djokovic relaxed. First match in a really long time. He didn't play Cincinnati. He didn't play... You know, he didn't play Canada where there wouldn't have been that much at stake. Every single match he played was historically enormous. So I think he relaxed in this match. Best performance. Best I've seen him play since Roland Garros. Um, getting into the tactics. New wrinkle. New wrinkle in the head-to-head now. And we've seen it before, but not like this. Djokovic leaned hard on the serve and volley. Craig O'Shaughnessy, brain game tennis. Um, hat tip to him for keeping track of the numbers here and writing it up. 39 serve and volley attempts for Djokovic. Now, some of those attempts, the serve didn't go in. So of those 39 attempts, 22 times the point was played out because Novak made the serve. He won 19 of the 22 points, including 12 for 12 in the second set at the turning point of the match, by far the most important point of the, point of the match, because Medvedev faded in the third set. So it became a little bit easier for Djokovic in that third set, and it, it just nothing was quite as important. The most important part of the match was the second set when both players were playing at a super high level. Who was going to win that? And when Djokovic came through, Medvedev went away a little bit. But the serve and volley was the main factor 
that built Novak a massive advantage in the short points in this tennis match, which ultimately swung everything in his favor. Novak winning points 0 through 4 shots, 54 to 36. And let's take a deeper look at that. Let's isolate it by who's serving. When Djokovic was on serve, and what you're going to see here is that the reason Djokovic dominated short points is because he did more damage early on on serve with the serve and volley primarily. Djokovic on his serve won 55 total points to Medvedev's 32 in the short rallies. This is on Djokovic's serve. 19 winners, 19 forced errors. Excuse me, 18 winners, 19 forced errors. 37 finishes within the first four shots on Djokovic's serve. Novak hit six aces. So that's factored in six aces. Um, you know, Medvedev made one unforced error in this segment of points. So that's 55 points won from Djokovic. Medvedev made one unforced error. That's damage. That is that is um proactive damage being done by Novak Djokovic against Daniil Medvedev and his deep return position. 18 winners, 19 forced errors out of 55 points won. Now Medvedev on serve. What do those numbers look like? Points zero through four shots, Medvedev on serve. 12 winners and eight forced errors. So 20 finishes versus Novak's 37. 20 versus 37. Zero through four shots. Who finished points? Novak did because he had that serve and volley. Now, I think a lot of credit goes to execution here. Serve and volleying on Medvedev is not some sort of incredible, incredibly creative innovation here. Many have tried it. Nadal has used it successfully in this matchup, in particular on the ad side primarily. But the commitment to it from Novak was really impressive. And then the execution. The volleying was just on point. Volleying short in the court almost always um, on the first shot and just making incredible volleys and also hitting the spots on the first serve. So the execution was unbelievable. But it's the commitment to it that really stands out. The confidence in that. It's the first time I've ever seen Novak trust this tactic deeply. To deeply trust it enough to use it again and again and again and to ride it to a victory for that to be the reason to win a match. Now, we've seen Novak serve and volley before. Novak serve, has served and volleyed when things aren't going his way and he's trying to change something up. We've seen that. We've seen Novak serve and volley when he's tired and he wants to run less. We've seen Novak serve and volley when he's frustrated and checked out. We've seen Novak serve and volley when he wants to mix in a changeup for variety to give the returner another look. We have never seen Novak serve and volley as a repeatable regular tactic. I don't think he's ever come into a match like he did here and basically decide that he's going to use it on, I don't know, nearly a good third of his first serve points. Let me check this real quick. So he did it on once on a second serve, but 22. Let's see how many first serves Novak hit in this match. Um, 57. 57 first serves and 22 serve and volleys. So that's between that's between a third and, and a half. So Novak's never used it that much. And it was really effective. Again, I, I credit a lot. Um, now, maybe I can... Uh, dive a little bit deeper um, next time I preview this head-to-head -head in things Medvedev can do better. I'm not going to do that right now. What's important here 
is the Djokovic serve and volley becomes a major key for short point dominance. It is the new wrinkle that Novak put in this head-to-head here. And it was really, really fascinating to watch. Serve and volley isn't dead. Serve and volley is just used differently. That's it. Now, another thing that happened in this match, my second tactical point here of three, an old pattern reemerged. My main, the main technical advantage that I think Djokovic has over Medvedev, in many ways, they mirror each other technically and in terms of what their strengths are. Um, but Djokovic has a better forehand than Medvedev. Very similar to the, th- the things I talked about in the semifinal with Hercotch. Novak's forehand is the key advantage. And the slower the court surface, and Paris played very slow, the more likely this is to make a big difference. Novak can sustain aggression better. It's more; It comes more naturally to Novak to hit aggressive forehands, and he's less error-prone. And that makes a difference when, in the scenarios where Djokovic stayed back in terms of hitting plus-one forehands, and that should be factored in to the damage, the 37 finishes that Novak had early in the first four shots of his uh, service points. And it's also factored into the longer rallies and just, you know, who has the weapon from neutral on a slow court. The slower the court, the more that's going to matter because Medvedev redirects pace well. His ball is flat. If the court is really speedy, then Medvedev's depth, his precision, his redirections, they can be effective offense, high percentage offense. But on a slower court... You need that extra pace, that extra spin, and Novak is able to generate that much more comfortably than Medvedev. So here are the numbers. On the forehand, Djokovic comes up with 16 finishes to 11 unforced errors. Medvedev, 9 finishes, 9 unforced errors. Djokovic gets a net positive out of that forehand. Medvedev gets a net even. That is the main technical edge that Novak has in watching the match. You know, a lot of it was this, you know, didn't have as much to do with Novak so much, his forehand being great. And by the way, I thought his shoulders were loose. He let loose on the forehand more than I've seen him. That arm was loose. You know, the tightness that I'd almost grown accustomed to watching Novak play tight. Seriously. Um, He was really getting after the ball and swinging through that forehand in a big way. So yes, Djokovic's forehand, I thought it was really firing the whole match. Sometimes missing, but that's okay. Aggressive the whole match. Uh, Medvedev, especially in the third set, when Novak really pulled away in the third set, Medvedev's forehand was absolutely hijacking his game. It was It was atrocious. And that can happen from time to time. Medvedev can let some forehands get away from him, especially when the ball doesn't have a lot of pace coming at him. And guess what? When Djokovic hits a stretch return, a neutralizing return off of one of Medvedev's bombing, you know, booming first serves, what's Medvedev getting? A low pace ball in the middle of the court on his forehand. And Medvedev missed that a lot. So... Uh, The forehand edge was very apparent here. And when they play on slow courts, I think it will be. Here's another adjustment that Djokovic made third and final point tactically. Novak's patience went up. In this head-to-head traditionally, we started with these matches being very physical. And then starting at this year's Australian Open final, Djokovic did not want to engage Medvedev physically and started to eagerly search for ways ways to finish the points. So Australia, that was a very aggressive, offensive match from Djokovic. And he made a lot of errors, especially in the first set, just trying to be ultra-aggressive. That was the game plan there. And it didn't work in New York. Medvedev ended up just dominating the lengthy exchanges because Djokovic was desperate and error-prone. And Medvedev was calm and patient and had the superior rally tolerance and was never the first to miss. The first set kind of looked like that. Again, Medvedev won uh, five-plus shots rather easily in the first set. Um, Won those lengthy exchanges. And Djokovic was not patient in the opening set at all. Medvedev won five through eight shots. 
Um, or nine nine plus shots, ten to six. Uh, five through eight was close. Six five Djokovic, uh, but ten to six Medvedev on points nine rallies or more, nine shots or more. Djokovic Djokovic actually won the fir- the short points even in the first set. Still lost the set because Medvedev was winning the long rallies. That was a patience thing. Here's how you know Novak got more patient and Novak mentally committed himself to grinding a little bit, to digging in and making less mistakes. The drop shots. The drop shots were the sign. Look, I like the Djokovic drop shot. Djokovic has a very good drop shot. But when he's using it a lot, it means something. It means he's looking for those finishes. And it it's just... I don't think that a key for Novak to win this match was to stop drop shotting. I really don't. I think the key for Novak was to be patient and to hang in the rallies. Well, Djokovic hit five drop shots in set one. He hit one for the rest of the match. It's not to say, and again, I'm just illustrating patience here. No desperation to finish the point. He was in it for the long haul if he had to be. And I think that mental adjustment was very important for for Novak to get this match back to where he wanted it and to end this streak of sets lost to Daniil Medvedev dating back to the U.S. Open where Medvedev was just winning all the rallies because he was the far more patient player with the much better rally tolerance. I think Novak just realized, like, I got to match this guy in rally tolerance here. I have to trust the other skills to, to be enough. Trust that I can hang in with this guy. And it made Novak a much better player. You know, did he have the, you might say, serve and volley is kind of antithetical to that. But it wasn't. Because serve volley was a high percentage tactic. Whereas Djokovic in a neutral baseline rally, just desperately looking for the finish, that was not a high percentage tactic. You know, that was low percentage. So Djokovic's patience was definitely way up starting in the second set. And you could see it in those drop shots, uh, those drop shot numbers. Just again, a byproduct of patience is less drop shots. It's not... It's not a tactic. It's a byproduct of having more patience. All right. We are ready to bring on Alex Gruskin of Cracked Rackets. Here we go. We're joined once again by our friend Alex, Mr. Concise Gruskin on Monday Match Analysis. He asked me to call him that. It's That wasn't, that wasn't me. Um, all right. Paris. And then we got some good year-end festivities. Can you believe well, since it? I, I'm going to say, since I'm concise, Gruskin, I have an opening tangent for you because there's like three people in the world I can talk to about my profession who will be like, oh yeah, I totally get what you're going through. You know those days when you do eight hours of broadcasting and you didn't sweat, but you just have that post-broadcast stench? Yeah, that's moisture. Just, <laughs> yeah, there's moisture. <laughs> that's the word when moisture is appropriate. That's what I have, <laughs> that post-broadcast moisture right now. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. I can't believe we've hit the year end. You look at all of the statistics. I've gone to the point where I click 2021 only instead of last 52. That's a big thing for me. That's like, you know, that's a wow. step in a relationship with the stats of this year. Well, that's some tennis abstract talk. I'm team 2021. <laughs> I'm not a last 52 guy, but um, uh, that's just me. I, I don't, I don't judge though. Uh, all right. <laughs> Let's see if you fall into the trap. All right. Djokovic defeats Medvedev three sets, Paris champion. Revenge for the U.S. Open um, loss. Like, what's your read on this head-to-head? Has it changed from this result? That's a great question to start things off. I would say if this was pro wrestling, they would have played for the U.S. Open title as well. They would have made it a double title final. Wouldn't have that made it that much more exciting? The Parisian crowd certainly would have enjoyed it. Where am I at with this match? I fired out this tweet earlier. I stand by the take. I think this is the best rivalry we have right now in all of men's tennis. And yes, the single best match, given the stakes, given the weight of the moment, was probably Nadal Djokovic at the French Open this year's semifinal, just the way Djokovic was able to win that match. That's probably the best tennis we saw from anyone in 2021. 
At the same time, there are just so many different quirks to this matchup. And the tweet of the day belongs to you, my friend, when you said it's, you know, the final of a Paris Masters and it's a serve and volley deciding that final. That Djokovic turns to the serve and volley shows where this matchup is at. There's no more secrets. You're bringing out all the trick plays. This is the, you know, QB double reverse lateral pass. We saw Purdue versus Michigan State. Djokovic brought it all out. And so where am I at on this matchup? It's a toss-up, in my opinion, every time they step up on the court. Nobody knew what that football, I mean, the Americans <laughs> would, but everyone else is totally lost on that. So uh, we thank you for that. Alex Concise uh, Gruskin. <laughs> <laughs> Double lateral. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Like, I, I think that's the correct answer is that, like, this is a great rivalry because if, if you go too far either direction, you're going to have a bad take. On, on this set, right? If, if after the U S open, you were like Medvedev owns Djokovic, well, now you're wrong. And now if you're like Djokovic has Medvedev figured out, you're also going to be wrong because so he goes 18 for 22 on serve and volley. And while I would never take away from how awesome that was, it's not like he's going to go out there the next time they play and automatically win at that kind of efficiency when he's serving volleys. Right. Well, we realize the conditions were indoor hard courts. I'm not saying we, meaning me and you, I'm saying more broadly, you have to look at each match in a vacuum. Now that's where we're at in this rivalry, where the conditions on court play a factor. And in the slower conditions of Australia, obviously Novak has proven, you know, that is where his best tennis emerges. And yes, Medvedev pushed him all the way back to what their fourth round matchup in 2018, which that was sneakily, maybe the best match of the tournament. And, I mean, you could tell the first set today in Paris, Medvedev was ready to make that match a track meet. And I do think that is one takeaway from this match. And I know Djokovic ended up winning and we can talk about why momentarily, but look, he's 25 years old. Medvedev's in the midst of his physical prime. And we know the answer to the question. Will anyone reach the stratosphere of Djokovic, of Nadal from a physicality standpoint in this next generation? I think the answer to that question is yes, Gil. And I think Medvedev's proven it. I honestly think Zverev's proven it. Tsitsipas on clay, yes, but the jury's still out. But those guys now, it's not just physicality. I'm going to outlast you. You're not going to do that with Zverev. You're not going to do that with Medvedev. And I do think that's a notable takeaway from this match. Yeah, I would agree. And Djokovic continues to be up against it against Medvedev when those rallies really extend uh, especially past nine plus shots. I believe he lost that battle um, overall. It didn't matter in the match because he he dominated the the short points. Um, I thought this was a, a decent performance for Medvedev. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I thought it was fine, but I think he ran into a Djokovic. Third set, he lost focus. Mm-hmm. He, he went away quite a bit in the third set. It, that happens with him. You know, that, that's a part of Daniil Medvedev. Um, well, how fascinating was it when he got kicked off that he, I almost swore there, sorry. Um, when he got angry, that he broke back 4 3 5. And yes, he got broken 6 yeah. 3. But to your point, he lost his concentration. You're right. Like, Medvedev blinked. That was it. It looked like yep. we were going to stay on pace, on serve in that third set. And it was noticeable that he blinked. It was also noticeable. It was the forehand that broke down, Gil. And to see Djokovic turn into an aggressor, attacking that forehand with his depth on the return, and just that was the side he was approaching to. He would go slice down the line, uh, slice cross court to the Medvedev backhand to open up the inside in. That was another, like, and again, pattern wrinkle when you're looking for the nuances. What yep. did Djokovic do well? I thought he did that well. Yeah, you, you got to do that. And, and Medvedev's forehand, like, Again, I think that's percentage tennis by Djokovic. There will probably be a point in the match where Medvedev's going to string together some forehand on four stars. Maybe not, but certainly not going to happen on his backhand. Yeah. Uh, Djokovic, best performance, as I throw a take at you and see how you react, okay. best performance in a big match from Novak since Roland Garros. Do you want some contenders here? Uh, give me the list of contenders off the top of my head. I mean, what did he even play since Roland Garros? Was it just Wimbledon, Olympics, U.S. Open, and this? Are those the four events? That's correct. Oh, my gosh. Well, Brooksby is automatically number one, let's just be cleared, because to beat the GOAT, you have to be the GOAT. Brooksby was injured. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sorry, I had to throw a take at your take. Um, All right, yeah, give me the nominees. Berrettini, U.S. Open quarterfinal. That was a stunning performance. I going to say Wimbledon final, and I was going to say get out of here. Nope. Um, And... Nishiko, I, I, 
full disclosure, I didn't watch this match. Nishikori at the Olympics was another one I got. It was, I think it was 6-1-6-1. Yeah. Draper set two. Wimbledon <laughs> first round. Are we sure? Like, that was a really good set of tennis from Novak. Um, no, I'm trying to think. All right. The best level is the first set he played against Alex Virov at the Olympic semifinal. He was lights out. And I know, again, that's one set and he loses that match. But that was, you obviously, I've got a zero take to throw at you later in this podcast. But that was a match to me where it just looked like, oh, my God, he's going to do it because he's found that form once again. And that zero flip that match was so particularly notable. And that started, you know, the downhill decline, not able to get over the hump there. And then just fear of, again, pushing him to the brink in New York, all of the matches where he was pushed to the brink in New York. I don't think anything at the U.S. Open except for maybe that Berrettini match is a good call is in play. It was also notable. He was bad against Fuchovic, not just like sloppy, just he looked slow. He looked, you know, uninvested in the event. So I'm going to say yes, best performance for him, particularly sets two and three since the French open. I think that's the correct take here again, other than Draper set two. (laughs) (laughs) My God, I thought you were going to let it go at least. (laughs) Well, I'm just like, if it's individual sets we're looking for. Yeah, but Draper, Draper, I understand no, that every match Draper, is important. <laughs> it wasn't Draper, but okay, I'm I was, just saying. No, because I was going to say. Does it have to be in a win? Does it have to be in a win? Yeah, yeah, it has It has to be in a win. It's not <laughs> okay. a good, it's not a best performance if you don't win. Um, or is it, is the flip side that Zverev was that good? And maybe that's the takeaway is that Djokovic's best first six months of the year was better than everyone else's. No, the last not, six not, months, his best wasn't, you know, wasn't definitively better than Medvedev's, wasn't definitively better than Zverev's. It was in New York against Zverev. It was here in Paris against Medvedev. But what I'm trying to prove more broadly, and this gets back to the physicality point that's called round circle, Alex Concise Gruskin, is that those guys are on the level now. That's one of my takeaways from 2021. And I'm not ready to say that about Tsitsipas, but I am ready to say that about the other two, that physicality alone will not win Novak Djokovic these matches moving forward. At least it shouldn't. Now, Zverev breaks down mentally. That's not a physical breakdown in the fifth set or anything like that. I just don't think physicality is going to be it for him. And that's why the wrinkles today, so impressive. I don't even think Novak wants physicality to be his calling card anymore. I think, <laughs> I think he's past that. Uh, all right. I mean, I'm ready to I'm ready to move on. Um, well, just from, last from Paris, thing, but when when Djokovic is saying his post match prayer now, and I almost crossed myself, which would have been odd given my Jewish upbringing. But when he crosses himself at this point, what is he saying? Like, I really am the best. Like, is that what he <laughs> says when he looks up now? Because sixth Paris title, and shout out to you via Sean Colvert, I believe it's Djokovic and chaos in Paris over the past decade, and it's like, well, if he tries, no chaos. If he doesn't try absolute madness that's a you know a, speaks to his dominance over the past 11 years and year-end world number ones he's got that now he's up you know going to get the titles record overall I think at this point if he just keeps playing a couple more seasons and wins and yada 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 like what do you say like does he actually what what are you even saying at that point like yep I did it I don't know what's in his prayers. Um, <laughs> you haven't asked that? That one didn't come up? No, 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 we haven't discussed that. Uh, but to your point about, about the records, um, I mean, this Masters one is interesting because obviously he had the lead and Nadal actually, I think, either retied him. Um, yeah, yeah he, and, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yep. Right, right. Uh, now, Rafa, I guess the, the point I'm trying to make and... By the way, you don't retie, I think you just tie. It's like he tied him. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Rafa needs to needs to pick it up with the the clay masters because he's just he's slowing down in that area, yeah. right? Yeah. So if it, I don't know, it, it's interesting. Let's see if that's the last time that that race shifts. It, you know. No, the big one's twenty. It's like that's uh, twenty-one. Yeah. Excuse me. That's the one looming over it. And Rafa must have seen those Indian Wells conditions and be like, "Damn, I let one go." Like. Ugh. A little bit, maybe and just, yeah. And it's like, I'm surprised on, he hasn't played better at Indy Wells, but that's besides yes, the point. Yes. Let's go to Milan now. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. Um, so we have the groups and that's I, next gen, right? Because that's Turin, next gen. Milan, yeah. Sorry. Turin, yes, it's very yes. beautiful in Italy. Yes. There's yeah. I'm sure the food's great. Both places. <laughs> um, now I have no questions prepared here. We're going to casually okay. kind of get through this. Uh, group a 
is Carlos Alcaraz, Brandon Nakashima, Juan Manuel Sarundolo, and Holger Rune. Uh, group B is Sebi Sebastian Corda, Lorenzo Musetti, Sebastian Baez, and Hugo, I only like to play in Paris, Gaston. Um, group, let's start with Group A, and, and let's kind of talk through this. First of all, it's just the, the stronger group, would you say? Uh, with Alcaraz, Nakashima, and Runa. I wouldn't be surprised if any of those three took the title. Nakashima would probably be a bump uh, under Runa and, and Alcaraz. Do you agree? I do not have Nakashima below Holger. That's an interesting take uh, because certainly from a firepower perspective, fine, you like Holger Rune, and he enters this event with a challenger title. He won this past week, but you know who won a challenger title two weeks ago on indoor hard courts? Brandon Nakashima. You know okay. who's won, you know, his, I think, past two hardcore indoor or indoor hardcore challengers? Brandon Nakashima. And I'm not saying this is a challenger field, but, you know, these are guys who are ascending. These are his quality of players. He comes in on an indoor hard court with as good a form as just about anyone. I, to your point about the groups being lopsided, all due respect to Hugo Gaston, who obviously makes that quarterfinal run in Paris and magic happens, what he did to Carlos Alcaraz. It's a shame if I'm rigging the draws, how they're not in the same group. That's malpractice by the people here at Next Gen because you can rig it because who cares? Like it's, it's an exhibition event. That said, the zag is to actually say the most valuable learning point for Group A is what is Juan Manuel Serendolo, leave it in, uh, great name, say it 10 times fast, <laughs> on an indoor hard court. We know he's won a clay court challenge, uh, clay court ATP title, excuse mm -hmm. me. I know he's won, I believe, four clay court challengers. I believe every match he's played in 2021 has been on hard courts, barring maybe a U.S. Open qualifying match. What is he on indoor hard courts? What does his game look like when he's, you know, again, forced to be a little bit more aggressive because he's a guy who plays track meet tennis. It's again, seven, eight feet behind the baseline. You think you can drop shot him. You can't, but you need to have weapons and are his serve and his plus one forehand big enough to hang with the best of the best of his contemporaries. I think that's actually the biggest question mark of group a now in terms of, you know, looking towards who's going to have success. Alcaraz is a man amongst boys now in this field. No sinner, no FAA quarter belongs in that discussion as well. But like in this group in particular, what Alcaraz has done over the past three months, all due respect to Brandon, who let's not forget, what was it? Back-to-back -back finals, Los Cabos, Atlanta yeah. uh, during the summer hardcourt stretch. He's been awesome. Alcaraz, can he extend his dominance? Because we've seen Sinner win this, Tsitsipas win this, all these guys win this and go on to success. That's the story. And then Surundolo, uh, what does he look like? on a hard court. Yeah. You know, I was going to say the champions here mm -hmm. have, have been shout very... out Hyun Chung. Right. Exactly. So, so Chung had injury issues yeah. uh, or is having, I should make that present tense. Uh, but you know, Tsitsipas center, you know, this has not been, well, uh, I would say the, the, I would say the favorites of one. It's the next gen jump. Hyun Chung, by the way, beat Djokovic at the next year's Australian Open. Stefano yep. Tsitsipas beat Federer at the next year's US Open. Yannick Sinner beat everyone this year and just, you know, or in 2020 as well. It's legit. Like, you win this, you you get some confidence. I'm the guy in my age group. There's still hype around Lorenzo Massetti. I did a video, Grusky, about who is going to be better, Alcaraz or Sinner, and there were people in the comments saying Musetti. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I'm not mad about it, but we need to talk about Musetti because he he's really, really struggling as of late to to win matches. What have you seen from him? It's just the lack of a clear plan A. I mean, why was he so good on the clay courts? Because his improvisational skills, the ability to turn defense to offense, he's never out of a point. He's willing to make matches attract me. That quality works in clay court tennis. It works at the challenger level. It's not going to work in the top 50. You need weapons and his weapon is his speed. And to a degree that works, that keeps you in the top 100, that degree of physicality, you know, you're going to win first round matches, win three out of five set matches. And it was fascinating to see him beat Emilio Nava at the U S open, despite having no momentum coming into that junior Australian open final rematch. It's it. Again, aesthetically, everything's beautiful. Like, I, I don't have any critiques of his form. 
it's just the game plan. It, it, it reminds me of Tommy Paul, just with a one-handed backhand, where it's like, I can do a lot of things, but what should I be doing? Yeah, it, it's definitely a case of uh, play style-wise. When you're not confident, when you start second-guessing yourself, things really go downhill. It's not, it's not a case of simple tennis with, you know, which lends itself to, to clear headedness and not as much second guessing. I think that's definitely true. Uh, hopefully he starts just enjoying himself a little bit more. Cause I really do feel like mentally he is just going through a hard time right now. Um, well, I think that's why this event is perfect home crowd, obviously in, in, you know, a relaxed environment, funky rules as well. It's an opportunity for him to be a shot maker, a showmaker, And I think that's when he plays his best. My prediction here Ooh. is not going to be bold because it, this <laughs> tournament just, it hasn't been bold. So Corda makes it out of group B and yeah, I mean the Sebastian bias, Hugo Gaston, you know, nothing really is going to tempt me. Everything I said Corda. about, about Surindolo, by the way, applies to bias. Absolutely yes. everything. Uh, yep. Agreed. And don't make a Diego Schwartzman comp. Don't be that lazy. He's flatter on the ground strokes, more aggressive from the baseline, also not Jewish. So that's a big <laughs> deal. Don't just make that comparison easily. Love it. Love it. Um, out of group A, I'm going to go with Alcaraz. So so there's your final. And there is it semis as well? Is it two players out of each group or is it just one this year? I believe they go semifinals, right? Where it's first place, second, first place, second, and then we see the matchup in the final. Now, if Corda Alcaraz is where you're going, hard to disagree with that. Uh, But I think they do semifinals. Oh, they do do semifinals. Yep, you're correct. Okay, well, Corda Alcaraz nonetheless. And um, I am going to pick Alcaraz and just drink the Kool-Aid. All right, I like that pick. I will say... It feels like Francis Tiafo has played. I think he's played every one of these events until this year. And so, like, can we just give him a spot in the draw? Like, just because why not? He belongs in the mix with these guys. He's still very, very young. I, last tangent, Alex Concise-Gruskin. Brooksby, Korda, Nakashima. And honestly, I mean, do we want to do 12 seconds on Kozlov and Wolf? No, we'll save that for my pod. Of course, <laughs> Crack Rackets, Mini Break Podcast, Great Shot Podcast. You all see the logos. But... Corda, Brooksby, Nakashima, where are you at? Because Corda, we had forgotten that late push in Paris certainly was a reminder of how good he can look. Yeah, and, and I'm still, I still think Corda is the safest bet to be a top 10 player there. Um, and I'm a big believer in what Brooksby does. And as I've told you, my biggest concern there is durability and, and staying healthy. And we've already seen that been, you know, something that, that he battles and then Nakashima, I really do think that there needs to be leaps made uh, on certain areas technically, um, the forehand hand being one of those things, and then the serve just beefing it up. This I agree with you on the serve there. I will notice in terms of him as a developer, he's gotten a lot better as a volleyer in his first eight Yeah, he, he's good. Months. Yeah, he he's a volley. good volleyer now, yeah. right? Yep. And, and so that development's encouraging. The amount of times I get texted from Baylor men's tennis head coach, Michael Woodson, because I gave a take either. I think it was with you on a podcast where I was like, yeah, I probably go Corda Brooksby Nakashima. And he, every time there's a Jensen win. And I saw like, I don't drive the Jensen bandwagon, but it's like, he's like, so what about now? What about now? What about now? And I think I finally succumbed to the pressure. I was like, you know what? Brooksby now. And I think I have to own that take moving forward. But man, when you watch Sebastian Corda again, it's, and I'm, I apologize for reusing this. It's, Thomas Burdich with Shakira's hips. You're just like, oh, he's fluid. And you watch the backhand and you're like, oh, it's that easy. And for those reasons, I'll take Corda to win this event over Alcaraz, as you mentioned. But Holger Rune is going to be the other guy. You're right. Over Nakashima to advance out of group A. Yeah, th- there you go. I mean, you almost had me half rescind my, my Rune over. <laughs> that was sharp, sharp argument by you. Thank um, you. All right. Big finals. I just want to get into things more generally. First of all, we have seen in the past this event, especially the eight seeds. Sometimes they just haven't hung in there very well, uh, <laughs> like the sevens and the eights. So, so this week was a big week for for Hubert Hercotch and Casper Rude. How do you think they'll do? This is a difficult event to debut in. I mean, uh, Matteo Berrettini a couple of years ago comes to mind. Just wasn't really quite ready to play the event. And qualified, but then what happens 
you know, you you're more comfortable the second and third time around. So how do you think Hercotch and, and rude will fare better than those other guys? Because the gap is just not as big between, you know, the 2011 to 2017, it was the Roberto Bautista, good David Ferrer Memorial eighth spot where it's just not to pick on the Spaniards, but it's just like, all right, I'm going there and I'm going zero and three, but I made it there and I get the bonuses and I'm in the suit photos. And that's really cool moving forward. Cause if Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray all look good in their suits, I'm going to be tweeted out for years to come. Um, I don't think it's that anymore. I do think there's a gap, particularly on hard courts between Djokovic, Medvedev and Zverev and everyone else. But my question to you and I'm sure this is something you get into on three, a tennis show. Mm-hmm. Um, but does Djokovic play at this point? He's clinched your number one. There's nothing for him to do at that event other than to get repetitions under his belt. And, you know, he talked about the letdown post US Open and to be back here, what a confidence boost it was. Why not just call it quits after pairs? What does he have left to prove at the year end finals? Let the young guys battle it out. It's a good question. Uh, uh, you know, it was interesting to see him say, the only reason I'm here in Paris is for year end number one, which is because, why I bring it up because he literally yeah, said it. Right. Uh, I mean, and, and it's almost like you want to say, well, it's a master's 1000. Aren't you here for the <laughs> master's 1000? <laughs> aren't you here to play one of the tournaments that you play? Uh, but, but you're right. It's just not that simple anymore. I do have a feeling he'll play. He's clearly in shape mm-hmm. having just won the title. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I think, I think that's enough, right? Uh, it's in a new location. It's mm. probably intriguing for him. Let's see what Turin is about. Um, and That's a good call. That's a good he, call. He has not won it in a couple years now. And I know it's been historically a good event. And sorry, I don't have that on me. Maybe um, 2017. Be, or no, 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 maybe 2015. Because 16's Murray. 17 Zverev. 18. No, no, no. Because Tsitsipas is 19. Oh, no, Medvedev's 20, Tsitsipas 19, Zverev 18, Dimitrov 17, Murray 16, Djokovic 15. You got it. Oh, he's still got it. So Djokovic 15, let's, uh, crap, you know, I I have another question. Like, I would love (laughs) to send you off on that. Like, you just, like, drained that half-court shot. I would love to be like, you can leave the gym now. Um, (laughs) But but, uh, how surprised would you be if, if Medvedev, Djokovic or Zverev didn't win it. I'd be pretty surprised. Yes, absolutely. And I, I'm so upset because the zag that would have been so easy to give is that Zverev Medvedev is the best rivalry in men's tennis right now, the physicality they can bring. And here's to hoping we get the two of them at their best form in some sort of matchup uh, at the ATP tour finals. Tsitsipas's health is a question mark. Rublev's just struggling to find wins at this point. I could see him beating up on a Hubi Hercots and just like going after it and, and really trying to, you know, build a confidence boosting win. At the same time, the Zag Hubi ends up in the semifinals. Just him on indoor hard courts. He's a primetime player. His ability to take that ball early on the rise. I think he's the guy who has sneaky amounts of success in this event. I think it's Medvedev or Zverev. I think Djokovic ends up pulling out. I think Sinner gets that eighth spot. You get the Italian, you know, two Italians in the draw. Oh, I forgot about Berrettini. Seem to always forget about Berrettini on an indoor hard court. Yeah. Let me just say, like, I don't think he's right. Yeah. Right. Something's a little off. He's a little off. Yeah. Well, he did, you know, he had a thigh injury and I just, after Wimbledon, I just don't really think. He's looked quite right. What's a thigh injury feel like? What exactly is it? The thigh is it? The no, quad? he's being he's being he's being vague like Titi Pass with the arm <laughs> until he wasn't. Um, which is uh, it's fine. It's fine though. I'm yeah. not I'm not throwing shade, but I do find it sometimes ridiculous the mm-hmm. uh, the shieldedness that players will sometimes approach the injuries with. Here's my last stat for you on that note. Why I think it's such a shock. Djokovic zero of Medvedev win. You guys, if you've listened to these episodes we've done before, top 15, 20, 25 clubs, hold percentage, break percentage leaders, according to our friends at Tennis Abstract. They also have a bunch of other leaderboards, top five win percentage against the top 50, against the top 20, top five win percentage against players ranked 21 or higher, top five win percentage against players ranked 50 or higher. In all of those categories, there are three names who are in the top five in each and every one of those lists, Djokovic, Medvedev, Zverev. The tiers are being made. 
it's clear cut right now. And for Tsitsipas, he is in an in-between tier. He's a little bit above Root, a little bit above Sinner, all those other guys. But those three have been the class of the field this year. And it would shock me if one of them doesn't end up as year-end champion. Part of it is, is where we're at right now in this season with Tsitsipas having health uh, yeah. concerns, Rublev having a, uh, a half-confidence crisis, Berrettini, as we just mentioned, not looking quite right. Hercotch, I agree with you, is the best dark horse with, with especially the serve that he brings on an indoor hard court. Um, and then Rude, I think, will uh, – he belongs there, and I'm really happy he made it. And, and he's the uh, big tour version of your Sebastian Baez or your J.M. Sarundolo, right, sure. where it's like, how are you going to hang elite guys – Indoor hardcore. Let's see what you got. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I oh, think we're that- calling him JM Sarundolo. What is he? W E B Dubois? Like Juan Manuel? Is that is the, he goes by the letters now? I I thought that people did that. I I've heard so many. I've heard Wampa. I've heard Juan P. <laughs> I've heard you know. Again, there's so many different moves too. I'm down with you know. I I like W M Sarundolo. I'm in. All right. JM. Um, Pleasure as always. Yeah, always sorry, I cut you off on your last point. I didn't mean to. No, no, that was. D- did I have more? I. Uh, you, you always. I did from a narrative perspective, and I know because we were talking here about this. It sucks that Sinner's not there. I love Hoopy Hercots, his agent Carter Lynn, near and dear friend of mine from our time at the University yep. of Michigan. Um, but yeah, name drop. Um, but oh, oh, how great would it have been if Sinner was that last name? I'm with you, but. He'll get there. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, so that's why I was not, I was not broken up about it because he'll be there. Yeah, all right. I'll take it. All right, very concise today. I like it. <laughs> what are we clocking at? Thirty-five? Something like that. Yeah, nice. Appreciate it as always. Thank you for having me, and obviously, I will have you back on our mini break podcast. Sometimes. Sounds good. Thanks.